This is episode 30 with performance psychologist Simon Marshall and three times world off-road triathlon champion Leslie Patterson, co-authors of The Brave Athlete. Ever since I interviewed health psychologist Dr. Justin Ross for episode 10 of the Strength Running Podcast, I knew the topic of sports psychology was a hot one. That episode rocketed to the most popular we've ever published, and we're building on that topic today. Joining me is the husband and wife team of Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson. Simon is a former professor of family and preventive medicine at the University of California at San Diego and a professor of sport and exercise psychology at San Diego State University. Right now, he's the performance psychologist for BMC Racing, a world tour professional cycling team. His wife, Leslie, is one of the most dominant triathletes around. She's a three times world champion in off-road triathlon. She's also an Ironman triathlon champion, a professional mountain biker, and a former national champion in cross country. They've teamed up to write The Brave Athlete, Calm the fuck down and rise to the occasion. Now look, we all know how important our brain is as runners. How many times have you been halfway through a long run or at mile 18 of a marathon or mile 10 of a half marathon and you've nearly had an anxiety attack over how much suffering you have left to endure? It happens to me. It happens to world-class athletes like Leslie, and I'm sure it's happened to you too. In this episode, we're talking about how to become more mentally tough by developing higher self-confidence, learning how to manage fear, and reducing anxiety. The runner's brain can be a liability or an asset. Simon and Leslie are here to show you how to make it into an asset. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, Simon, Leslie, thanks so much for being on the Strength Running Podcast. I'm excited. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having uh, us. Yeah, big, big fans. So excited to be on here. Yeah, I have to tell you, we're talking about sports psychology today, mental toughness, and how to become better at that. While at the same time, earlier this morning, I had to stop my workout early because mentally I just didn't have it. So I feel like a bit of a fraud, but hopefully this conversation <laughs> will be helpful to not just our listeners, but uh, to me too. Well, the good news is that doesn't make you a fraud. It makes you perfectly normal. And most of us have these sorts of issues. We probably just don't often confess them. So we're, yep. we're delighted to hear that you struggled. <laughs> yeah, including me. You know, uh, even even world champions have the, the tough days almost every other day. So <laughs> it's common. I think hearing that pro athletes have the same mental struggles as everyday yep. runners is such a relief to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. So what I'd like to do today is talk about um, four different areas of sports psychology that are really important for runners. Self-confidence, comparing yourself to others, managing fear, and reducing anxiety. And I think these are not only some of the most common issues that runners face, but I also think they might be some of the most impactful to their performance. Absolutely. And, and in fact, that those, uh, you know, in our in our book, we have these 13 issues that came from our athletes or folks we've coached or consulted with. And, and we were we were eager to really speak to 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 what struggles and challenges athletes had rather than the ones that we think they had. And and of those 13, I'd say those four are probably, you know, uh, in the top five, certainly because we see that, too. So that's kind of consistent from our perspective. Now, would you say self-confidence is is probably the top trait here? Well, it is certainly, you know, it's, it probably isn't the most common thing that people come to us with issues, but it's certainly the most common fix-all solution. In fact, if, if we could identify any psychological wonder drug that would really have an impact on, on pretty much everything mental about your sport and how you approach it, it would be confidence. And so we really try and focus always. You can't really have too much of it in sport, particularly in, the, in endurance activities. Um, you can have it. You can have too much of it in sports where there's a lot of uh, uh, risk, life-threatening risk. But for most endurance activities, especially running, you know, super high self-confidence is always going to help you. Yeah, it's interesting looking back on my own running career because I, I don't think I ever really suffered from any issues of, of low self-confidence when it came to my ability. Even when I was just starting, you know, I was a freshman in high school, I, I went out for the cross-country team, and, you know, I was surrounded by people at all ability levels, and I could see almost this path to 
getting on the varsity team to becoming all conference to hopefully qualifying for um, you know the the state meet and I could see how to do that because I could see the the sophomores the juniors the seniors at all different abilities and so for me it was never I don't think I can ever do that it was only it's just a matter of time and putting in the work um, right. so I, I would love to you know talk about this this belief that you can succeed do you think you know this is one of the more important psychological traits that a runner can have it, it really is and and it's and it's good that we call it a trait meaning it's sort of this enduring characteristic of our of our personalities i mean we can't we know that we can develop it but what's interesting is that the psychological research shows that self-confidence or what we think of as self-confidence, the belief in our ability to do something, regardless of actual skill or whether we can, but it's the belief that we can, um, is really just a little window into a bigger system of self-judgment, the way that we evaluate what we can do, what we're capable of, and even things a little bit more deeper than that, like what we're worth as a person and how valued we are. And that that self-judgment system has multiple levels of which self-confidence is just one. So I think that when 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 folks come to us or, or, or say, you know, I I've never really had a self-confidence problem or I don't really feel often it's because the things underlying the sorts of self-judgments we make about ourselves underlying confidence have never really they've, you know, been developed in a fairly healthy way and they've never been in jeopardy and and so on. But underneath low self-confidence, there are often other deeper issues about our judgment. And so we use this analogy um, that seems to resonate with with athletes of, of, of a tree and each element or part of a tree corresponds corresponds to a different kind of the way a different way that we judge ourselves so if we think of the roots of a tree being deep underground and this is what we consider self-worth and so self-worth is basically how that you value your worth as a person your humanness whether you can be loved and whether your life is valuable so we all hope that we have you know healthy childhoods where we have built a good self-worth system and a healthy root system self-worth develops into a healthy trunk of a tree and that's what we consider self-esteem so now self-esteem is a little bit more related to your your competencies what you've done and what you can do and as you move up into the branches of a tree, this is what self-confidence is. And, and, and the reason self-confidence is really interesting is because it can be different. It's the first time that our judgment system is differentiated, which means there are multiple branches. And in practical terms, this means that we can feel really confident about one aspect of our life, like as a runner, but we can be re feel really unconfident about us as a, you know, a marketing consultant or whatever your job or any other hat that you have to wear. And we know that, you know, uh, uh, having different levels of confidence in different aspects of your life. Uh, tell us a little bit about what where the underlying issues or how we try and fix those problems. But if we go for even higher up the tree, there's something called self-efficacy. And psychologists use that to refer to a very specific form of self-confidence. So, so whereas confidence is about your general abilities as a runner, but your self-efficacy might be your ability to pace accurately or very well or have a good sense of pace. But your strength, you might have a very high self-efficacy of your strength and your endurance, but you might have low self-efficacy of your ability to pace or so on. So what we do is we ask quite pointed questions to see how deep in your little me tree, as we call it, the problem goes, because that has quite important implications of what we actually do about it. That's fascinating stuff. I and mean, one of the things that I was going to ask you was, you know, do you think runners are too judgmental of their own abilities? And I think, you know, you talked about, you know, this this voice in your head and how you talk to yourself about your own capabilities and, and whether or not you judge yourself in a, in a healthy or unhealthy way. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, and I, and I think that we all, you know, athletes and, and especially endurance athletes, and there's been some research on personality characteristics of endurance athletes, they tend to have more neuroticism, a little bit more anxiety and, and some of those things. And, and what comes along with that is a little bit more um, introspection and, and, and thought. So we, 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 we might, as endurance athletes, be pr more prone to just thinking about stuff, thinking about things that we are can do, that we can't do, uh, and so on. So that we might be predisposed 
opposed generally to be thinking about what we can do and what we can't do because partly we've fat our personalities and we've gravitated towards some of these activities for whatever reason that maybe kind of nurture or bring some of that out. But certainly the, the thoughts and feelings you have about your confidence are really critical. And, and I know Leslie struggled with this until fairly recently in her career and, and she's developed some strategies to help. Yeah, I think I think as well, there's a lot of social comparison that goes on now. And so, you know, we've certainly noticed in our coaching business that, you know, people are never satisfied. They're always striving for more uh, because we're constantly comparing through social media, um, you know, and there's um, the bar is set very, very hard, you know, high for people. Uh, so in that regard, being content is a tough one. Uh, living in the moment is also a tough one. Um, living with gratitude as well. Uh, a lot of people, you know, aren't really utilizing that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I've certainly been on a journey to discover all of those things uh, across my career. Um, you know, I've been in the sport for 25 years and I'm pretty young. Um, I retired from the sport because I got very dis disillusioned and kind of went away and discovered myself before coming back and having more success uh, the second time through. And as a consequence, kind of starting to understand myself and develop techniques to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and I think and I think here's the big lesson, uh, particularly when it comes to confidence, is that all the you know, it's one of the most studied uh, areas in psychology and sports psychology, and it all points to a fairly consistent uh, conclusion, and that is the best way to develop confidence is to have success, right? Success breeds confidence. There's really no way around this. So if you're always in environments where you're perceiving it as failing or you're not measuring up to where you want to be, it's really hard to build confidence. You can't learn confidence. You kind of have to earn it. And so if you're around environments that you're always running with people who are slightly quicker than you or slightly faster than you or you're entering events that are really quite challenging based on your fitness, it's really hard to build that. So it's really important that we set the sorts of goals that we get people to have a sense of success. And this might be to, to shift from an outcome focused about placings and times or pace to much more of a process focus about technique and form or other things that are always in their control, whether it's their attitude and their effort during running or what have you so feeling getting a sense of building a sense that they are feeling successful is absolutely critical to to building more confidence now what about for runners who who describe themselves as not naturally self-confident how do they expose themselves to more success so that they can better build that that level of self-confidence in their own abilities yeah, I, I mean, so again, we come back to this. It depends on why they uh, why they feel as though they're not they're not very confident. So if we think that what's what's kind of presenting, as it were, of not having confidence as a runner, but we think that they have lower self esteem or questions about their self worth, and you can ask questions about you know how people judge and rate their abilities and whether how they compare themselves generally to find that out because self esteem and self worth, particularly if they're low, take quite a different set of strategies than just building confidence per se so I think that it's important to know that first before you start to get into some of the elements of what you can actually do about it yeah that's a great point um, I'd love to hear your perspective on the idea you know and Leslie you, you mentioned this you know a lot of runners they're they're always trying to to be better to do more to improve do you think that's necessarily a bad thing I mean isn't that one of the reasons why runners run because they they like the feeling yep. of of constantly trying to improve yep. upon uh their previous performances and and maybe at what point does that become unhealthy yeah you know i think it is very important and i think that um you know the the tough thing with that is that trying to enjoy your successes um, is an important thing to to do. So, you know, I've had a lot of experience in my career of just always striving and never, ever being happy. Um, you know, it's like you win wor one world title and you have to win the next. Uh, and, and also all of that expectation around you um, that, you know, puts a lot of pressure on yourself. So I think there's always a compromise, right, between having goals and striving to want to be better, but also, uh, you know, having a sense of, you know, hey, what 
I, I need to pat myself on the back. I need to really sort of realize what I've achieved and feel good about that. So it's it's always that balance that's yeah. tough. And I think, you know, the human brain is wired to be a to be a horizon seeker, right? So we're always looking for for what's next or how once we've done something or achieved something, our brains are sort of now looking for what would be an improvement over that. And and I think that that, that really feeds into some of these issues with, with self-confidence or the thoughts that are around that never being enough is because we forget that actually being in the present or staying in the present is one way that we can reflect on and enjoy how far we've come. And it doesn't mean that you become, you settle for mediocrity or you set, but it does mean that you take time to be in the present, to think about what you're doing and what you've just achieved rather than, you know, this never being enough. And it's a, and it's a fight that many athletes don't win because again, our brains are always telling you that that this won't be enough. And for some of that, this is about, you know, we talk in our, our book about having, a a mental model understanding why we're fed these thoughts and feelings that we don't want meaning you know i've got a thought that it won't be enough or i'm gonna i won't actually be taken seriously until i've done this or i've repeated a win or i've come back as a defending champion or i finally cracked qualified for boston or whatever whatever it happens to be but the reason we have some of those thoughts and feelings and understanding those reasons are really critical to try and get a handle on being able to just interrupt that chain and being able to stay present, being able to take some gratefulness and joy in how far you've come, focusing on the process. And I think those are the skills that really we need. And and this isn't just obviously unique to sport. You know, you there's is quite a big trend now in mindfulness and meditation. And all these all these techniques are really designed to help us do the same thing. A life is moving at such a tremendously fast pace, and that's exacerbated by how we interact with social media. But occasionally it's nice to just take the time to live in the moment and enjoy what you're doing and how well you've done. Yeah, I've experienced this with some of the athletes that I coach. You know, you're, they, they run their goal race or, or maybe even a tune-up race and they run a personal best. They run quite literally faster than they have ever run before. And then they're disappointed afterwards. Right. And it boggles my mind. I think every PR should be celebrated. You've just right. hit an enormous milestone. You've performed at a level that you have never performed at before. And you're absolutely right that I think whenever you have some, some sort of accomplishment, no matter what it is, it's always helpful just to take a step back and to put it into, into perspective, to be grateful that you just hit a big milestone, and just to take a little bit of a time out and not constantly, constantly be searching for the, the, the next new thing, the next PR, the next big workout. Right. And I think that's where, um, you know, a huge part of um, feeding your brain the right sort of messages and and, and nurturing it is uh, to actually give back. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> and I find that, you know, whether it's working on a charity or just going out and helping other people or, or being part of social groups, where you are experiencing other levels of athletes, other, you know, people that have issues going on in their life, it really puts things in perspective. Um, because it, it, it's funny, I mean, even even being injured, for instance, you know, when you come back from an injury, the level of gratitude that you have and just sort of feeling good about being able to do it, uh, it suddenly changes your whole attitude towards a sport. So it's constantly just kind of uh, creating that self-awareness. But the ability to do that is a skill, and it's a skill that we have to learn <coughs> because it doesn't come naturally to us because, again, our brains are wired to be horizon lookers and seekers. And so it's really these are skills that we have to train ourselves to do. So it's not really a surprise that it doesn't come naturally to people or that people, you know, you know, so, no sooner has the race ended and they've got a PR, they're now looking about how they could have run even faster because of the you know three or four things as they do the post-race autopsy that they get frustrated at so it's a skill that we that we we try and teach our athletes but it takes practice like all like all skills um but you can reap the benefits of it yeah i think it's worth noting too that most of what we're talking about today are skills the you know the skill of building uh, your self-confidence, your, your skill at reducing anxiety before a big performance and, and several other things we're going to talk about. I think it, it's really, really important for runners to know that they can improve these things. These are not set in stone. You are not forever destined to be an, an unconfident, very fearful, anxious runner. If you are, you can get a lot better. 
now, one thing you guys mentioned, um, b- both of you, was was comparing yourself to, to other athletes and how social media has really kind of made that phenomenon worse. I'd love to know when is it when is it okay to do that? Because I think you know a healthy amount of comparison can can actually be beneficial. And and when is it inappropriate to compare yourself to other other people? Well, I don't know if there's an easy answer to, you know, finding some sort of threshold. But what we do know, uh, and neuroscience and cognitive psychological researchers found this, is that it's perfectly normal and healthy to compare yourself to other people. And and we get a little frustrated and, you know, particularly at the, 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 the memes on the Internet or the Motivational Monday emails or the, you know, don't compare yourself to others. You should never do it. Or, and really, people feel guilty about doing that and they end up feeling worse than, than before. And and, and it's a perfectly natural thing for your brain to want to do because whenever you get information about yourself that's new or novel, the first thing is what does that information mean and whether it could be, you know, if you're running, if you're new to running and then you, you know, you look at your average pace for a particular course and you think, okay, what does that mean? Is that good? The next question is always going to be, well, is that any good? And we look to other people to benchmark and help us put that in some in perspective. And so when we find ourselves trying to interpret information that we get about ourselves, it's entirely normal to look to other people to, to compare yourself to. The, the challenge now is that we live in an environment that social media has made this not just easy to do, it facilitates it. And social media, uh, you know, particularly Facebook and, and, and Instagram and, 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 uh, and Twitter, really are, are is software um, that's designed to help people manage the impression that other people have of themselves. So psychologists use this term called impression management. And it's really the way that we subconsciously, as well as consciously, but often subconsciously, try to change other people's perception of us. And it's entirely normal and natural to want to do. We all do it. Um, uh, So, But on social media, what you're seeing is people's curated highlight reel of themselves in the best possible light. And again, it's not malicious or meant to be sort of narcissistic. There are some people who have narcissism who do it. But most of us, you know, are going to be quite selective on what we disclose and what we don't. And it isn't that people are lying about the sessions they've done or how badass they are, but they are selective on picking the ones that present them in the the best light. So what we say to our athletes is, is, listen, there's nothing wrong with using social media, but just first of all, recognize that what you're looking at is a highly sanitized curated version of their truth it isn't actually the everyday you know uh, uh, um, run-of-the-mill things you know peek behind the curtain of what their life is actually like an actual fact what we've noticed is that the more perfect their life seems on social media usually the more problematic it is in real life but what we do is that we try and say listen the way that people bond and feel and and connect with other people is not on strengths it's not on this perfect curated highlight reel at all it's really through through vulnerability and weakness and again there's lots of research to show that you bond on people on those things so letting your guard down or offering up things that you aren't comfortable with or or feel great about or you didn't do well in and volunteering that and broadcasting that to the world either through friends in conversation or through social media is terrifying for certain parts of your brain but for other parts it's incredibly liberating and what people find is that they the love they get back uh, is far more important and powerful than just this constant you know status enhancing like everyone's badass everyone's great everyone's strong everyone's perfect everyone's fast thing view of the people that we see of themselves on social media there's a there's an interesting uh phenomenon on twitter right now it's called rest day brags and <laughs> there are elite runners and and everyone else who are bragging about how lazy they are on their recovery days um and so i think this is a great kind of look at the opposite side of this coin where people are trying to bring to light the fact that they're not always running up mountains they're not always in you know these gorgeous trail runs out in the front range they're not always running personal bests sometimes they're just sitting on the couch with their foam roller and they're not really doing anything and i think it's important to show that because you're absolutely right there's you know it's it's a curated look at your life and you know a lot of people you know their their twitter persona their facebook persona it's it's mostly one slice of their life so for me on twitter it's like 90 percent running but I am not just a runner and a running coach. You know, I do other things. I have a family. I have other interests. And so 
it is definitely just a very curated, incomplete look at what someone does and how they think. So I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's one of the biggest skills I've learned as a coach is actually, you know, the skill of empathy and um, <clears throat> really expressing to my athletes the the fears, the doubts, uh, the bad days that I've had. And I think they're often very shocked to hear that from me uh, as a professional. And, and once they do, it gives them the courage to confess to me you know, what it is they're going through. And, and as a consequence, we bond on that. And, and ultimately, that makes them, you know, more truthful and, and better as athletes yeah. and, and our relationship better as a coach and an athlete. It sounds to me that comparing certain performances uh, to other runners is probably a good thing, you know, when a big picture. But when you're comparing every single run, every single yeah. workout, every Brutal. single exercise session that you have, that's when it starts to become, you know, this, this unhealthy level of comparison where, right. yeah, you yeah. know, if you run, if you run a marathon once a year, sure, compare yourself to age graded percentages and, and see how you compare that way. But when it comes to your easy Monday four mile run, you know, I think we need yeah. to step, step back and really realize it doesn't matter if you do that run in 35 minutes or 38 minutes, right. it has no impact on your worth as an athlete or your ability in a race situation too. Well, it's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting and, and the freedom and just the enjoyment of, of, you know, going out there and, and you know, and enjoying nature and, and, and the act of running that that starts to dissipate and that's that's a trouble with you know the sort of data-driven world that we now live in it, there's both amazing things about that but it, it also becomes very confining uh, so you know there's always a balance to be had and you know we'll do exercises with our athletes for instance where it's hey, just go out, wear a regular stopwatch, no Garmin, no pace, no nothing, you know, go on a different route that you, you don't normally go on and just go and enjoy it. Um, so, you know, I think it's really important to have runs like that in your schedule too. Yeah, I miss, because, you know, I'm, this is going to date me a little bit, but when I started running, we didn't have smartwatches, we didn't have yep. all of the fancy tech wearables that we have now. And most days, our coach simply told us, go run for 45 minutes at an easy effort. There was no pace. Yep. He, didn't, he yep. didn't talk about vertical oscillation rate or any of the crazy yep. metrics that we can now track with the wearables that are out there today. And while I think the, the metrics that we can now look at are really interesting and they, they certainly have a place in, in reviewing some runners' training, I think for a lot of runners, you know, we need to get back to running by feel, running things that we enjoy so that, you know, there's there's less to compare and there's more enjoyment inherent right. in our activity. And that's going to that's well, going to make happier runners. And I think happier yeah. runners are probably going to be more effective at their training. Well, I, I used to, uh, I, uh, you know, grew up in Scotland running with my dad from the age of 12 years old. And uh, we would go run over the, the hills and mountains of Scotland. And it was purely a stopwatch that we had. There was no distance covered. Um, it was, you know, you ran in a group. We socialized. We chatted. We would sometimes go up a hill hard, sometimes not. We'd stop for a cup of tea or a piece of cake. And it was all very unstructured. Um, some days were hard, some days weren't. And, it, you know, we went off feel. And, and so I really grew up in this environment mm -hmm. that was kind of gritty and tough, but in a, a, in a very unstructured way. And, and it certainly didn't do me any damage. Um, and, and, and this isn't just a, a nostalgic issue about, you know, time before gadgets, because, we, I, you know, my belief and certainly taking a read on some of the, the neuroscience on this is that this the gadgetization, if that's even a word I think I've just made up, um, is, 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 is really is really making us softer mentally. Uh, because what we've done, we've outsourced to wristwatches and, you know, smartwatches um, 
a whole host of metrics that before we used to base on feel. And there's a part of our brain, it's called the anterior cingulate cortex, the ACC. It sits right behind your eyes. And its job, among other things, it processes social pain, and but it also processes physical pain and discomfort. So when we get these senses back from our, from our legs and our blood telling us how hard or how easy something is, it gets processed in this part of our brain. And the, and the way that our brain then instructs us on how far, how much much more we can push is it then takes information about how far it's you still have to go so it needs information about how the distance you still have to go to before to give you some feedback about how hard this will feel there's a whole host of studies in psychology where we've used deceit over how much how far you've run how to, to know that this is true but what happens is as you force that part of your brain to regulate effort through knowing how far you're going how far and listening to the cues that your body's giving you that part of our brain grows and thickens and that makes us we and the consequence of that is we're able to put up with more discomfort so but by so by outsourcing a lot of this regulation to smart watches we're not really building that sort of inner mental anterior cingulate cortex density for want of a uh, uh, scientific phrase uh, and so and I, and I think what happens is then when, when we don't have this information available we're suddenly terrible at being able to run on feel so I think it's really important that athletes and even if they don't feel as though they're ready to run completely gadget naked they can at least put you know turn their watch around or change the screen collect the data and look at it after the fact but not try and rely on it at during the session because it's not just getting back to the fun and joy of running it's actually doing your brain good by strengthening the parts of it that control effort and interpret perception of of, of discomfort well i'm glad that it's not just old man fitzgerald pining for the days when <laughs> there were no wearables there's actually some science behind this and exactly, exactly. that can actually help you be a more mentally tough runner who can who's able to endure a little bit more discomfort. Um, and speaking of that discomfort, you know, let's talk about managing some of the fear that runners have, because I think a lot of that fear stems from the, the discomfort and the race-related pain or the, or the pain of running hard. Um, right. Can you help us understand what an athletic comfort zone really is? <laughs> yeah and i think that you know one of the things that we're all that the challenge is with with thinking about this stuff about how hard should i should it hurt what do other people hurt as much and more importantly how do i get my brain to tolerate more uh, embrace the suck a little bit more is that we're using the tool that's flawed to try and fix the problem right we're using our brains to try and fix the problem with our brains and that alone is quite a difficult thing to wrap your head around but also to know what should what should it feel like what is this experience normal or should are people putting up with more pain than me or as i'm getting fitter and so and there's a little we have a little bit of guidance on some of the research and and it shows that you know the, the, the perception of effort that you have really is kind of similar across people regardless of your fitness levels. It's just that some people are just going faster than others. So most people are kind of hurting for the want of a better word, unless that they, you know, there are a few caveats to that, but most of us are. So, so the first thing is that recognizing that it's one of the most common experiences. And, and then the other thing is that not listening or buying into that narrative in, in, in particularly in endurance sport, um, where, you know, you've got to learn to love to suffer, love the pain or you got to embrace it and and this is really one of the biggest myths because we know that it, it isn't pleasant and and your brain is wired to tell you that discomfort and pain isn't to be tolerated otherwise and there's a whole host of evolution reasons why that's important but as a survival mechanism those sorts of cues are really critical for telling us that we so we don't to do ourselves any harm or danger but what we can do is we can train our brains to put up with a little bit more than we currently can cope with whether it's similar to the person next to you or another athlete in your group is another thing so and again, some of these come from neuroscience. So, for, so for example, one of the most beneficial strategies is to simply rely on uh, uh, your brain's desire to segment or break up large challenges into smaller challenges. And there's no there's no there's no easier way to piss off your brain than keep telling and thinking about the length of a full marathon or the length of a half marathon, when really your brain will be much more happy if you say, listen, we haven't actually got to run 26 miles, we've just got to do 26 one mile repeats, or we're going to run, you know, five miles and five mile, we're breaking something into small manageable segments. And the reason that's effective is because as you start to be able to 
complete something once the you know the 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 the, the finish the end point of that little segment is closer than the actual event but you get a little squirt of a neurotransmitter called dopamine and dopamine is like our brain's pleasure juice and not only is it a reward and makes us want to do something again it also fuels motivation so your brain is going to get much you're going to micro dose yourself with dopamine if you let yourself or force yourself to think in in tiny chunks rather than the whole event so we will never have an athlete you know think of an entire race strategy for a half or a full but we will say okay for the first two miles this is what we want you to focus on and from mile two to four this is what we want you to focus on and even if it takes that you have to write the strategy on your arm or you memorize it or you write it on the back of a uh, you know uh, a gel or whatever it happens to be but because your brain will thank you for that at a chemical level and also a sort of an attentional you know concentration level so that's one thing that's really important Another strategy is to is to use uh, your brain's love of rhythm and counting and repetition. And so now, you know, counting and and the good thing about running is it lends itself. It's such a rhythmic sport uh, that you can count arm turnover, leg turnover. And and I think that counting to six or eight uh, and then repeating is not just a concentration, a distraction strategy, but it's also fueling the fact that this is how your brain likes to cope or can cope better with discomfort. So getting into a repetition of counting and some athletes like Leslie will remember choruses of songs for big races and repeat them over and over to herself in her head. And again, this isn't just sort of a distraction. This is actually biochemistry uh, because of how our brain can tolerate discomfort and how that anterior cingulate cortex processes those effort cues. We can kind of, you know, take some distraction away from how it does that by focusing on something else else like counting or segmenting uh, um, an activity. When I look back on my career, I was really grateful for a coach, excuse me, that I had in high school who would constantly prod us to get out of our comfort zone. And he would yell this to us when we were in races. And it really fostered this team environment where we pushed ourselves. We, we tried to get out of our comfort zones as much as we possibly could when, when it was appropriate to do so during a faster workout. And of course, during races, um, and, and really understanding that you're never going to improve if you don't attempt to get out of that comfort zone. And for me, that impressed upon me, this, this almost sadistic inquisitiveness about when I'm in a race situation, I'm curious how hard I can push and how much discomfort I can experience. Now, 80% of the time, I'm not that curious. <laughs> I, I, right. don't wa- I don't want to know too much. But when I've had breakthroughs in races, it, it very often was when I, I was experiencing all this discomfort and race-related pain, but I almost didn't care about it. And I just wanted to go a little bit harder and a little bit harder. Is, is, there, any, is there any truth to, to this idea that just wanting to experience a little bit more pain and pushing yourself in a race, are there any, is there any teeth to that? Absolutely. In fact, you know, the, the way that your brain adapts and becomes better at coping with discomfort is by is through adversity. So, so you know, training sessions that are comfortable, and I'm comfortable meaning that not only your confidence to be able to get them done is 95 or 100 percent, but also how they feel if you're doing low constantly doing you know not really running much above high tempo or low tempo runs, then of course you're not putting yourself in your in the position where your brain is physically changing and and neuroscientists have a phrase for this it's called neuroplasticity and for years we thought you know you can't teach an old dog new tricks that your brain the way it was wired the way it was and there's not much you can do about it but we know that that's now false your brain physically changes uh, you know throughout your entire life based on the experiences that we put it under or in conditions that we, that we are exposed to. So being in discomfort or forcing yourself out of that comfort zone is not just developing the mental sort of the mindset of coping with it. You're getting actual physical changes, synapses change, blood biochemistry changes. And so I think that one of the things that we get athletes to think about that moment when you're thinking about how hard or how hurtful it is, that sort of go, no-go decision, do I back off or do I keep pushing? Some of it's driven by curiosity 
in your in your case, but other people are just kind of scared and frightened. And so what we try and say is that when you recognize you're in that 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 place, rather than focus on, you know, some of the physical cues, your respiration rate or your heart, you know, all the other things that give us the feedback to tell us that it's hurt and you can't sustain this for very long. You got to think of it as this is where the mental toughness is being built at a cellular level. This is happening. And so it's almost good in those situations to to be curious about being uncomfortable and forget all of the metrics that tell us how fast we are or, or how fast we're going or how longer we can't how much longer we can't sustain this for. But to say this is where that mental hard work, mental toughness is being built because it isn't done on those easy days. You have to experience adversity to develop your ability to become better at coping with adversity. Yeah, you know, when I, th- I think back to of, of a different coach I had in high school, and I've mentioned this before, I think numerous times on the podcast, but he would frequently call out to us in a race, you know, usually in the, in the latter half of the race, it's time to make a decision, what do you want to do? And, yeah. you know, you yeah. recently said, you know, there's, there's a time in any race, you know, there's, it's this no go, no go decision. You, you either decide to go for it or you're not going to go for it. Uh, I, I really like that. I think as many uh, opportunities that we can highlight for runners to really uh, understand, you know, that is when those changes take place. Right. That, that right. simple time in a race where it starts to get really hard and you basically choose to push and really go for it or you choose to settle and perhaps run a mediocre race. So I right. think those specific decision points are, are critical for not only developing mental toughness, but really changing the brain so that you're wired to be tougher too. Yeah. I think as well, having the right kind of training partners around you and social environment around you that uh, one makes you feel like you um, have the support to do that, uh, but also um, uh, people around you that inspire you to do that. I have several training partners that, you know, will always, always take the hard way. They'll... I mean, the ability they have to push themselves beyond those limits is unbelievable. And that's really rubbed off on me. And I'll think about those uh, uh, friends and training partners when I am in race situations. And I think, what would so-and-so do? And, you know, I mean, it's just amazing when you have those influencers around you. Yeah, there's so much to be said for positive peer pressure. Um, yep. at, the, at the risk of this being old man Fitzgerald's uh, story time. My, my uh, another great high school story is when I was a freshman, we chanted grimace before our races. That was like our, our big cheer. And it part of it was because we understood that this the race was going to be very hard and we were going to grimace through the pain. We were going to bear it. We were going to be mentally tough. And yeah. it was built into the culture of our team. And so if runners can find that culture elsewhere, if they can find a group of like-minded runners to support them, to push them to be better versions of themselves, then I think that's only going to make them better runners too. Yeah. And, and it actually makes you better at coping with discomfort. And so, again, not wishing to keep bringing this back to some neuroscience, but there's a, you know, the, this part of your brain that I've spoken about has something called antici- a, a mechanism called anticipatory regulation. So what that means is that in an effort to think how much or how hard it can push, it tries to anticipate it. And so this is why when you know how far you've got to run or how much it'll hurt. And what we can do is we can psychologically brace ourselves for more discomfort by not distracting or pretending it won't hurt, but by, in fact, by doing the exact opposite. So now we almost, like you talk about the grimacing, which is a great strategy that that works. We have this little thing that we call it a pain prayer, or we have people go through this little ritual and saying, am I willing to accept the most possible discomfort and pain that I've ever felt in a, this race before? And am I willing to let my body go there? And you're kind of making this pledge to yourself. And psychologically, what that's doing is it enables this anterior cingulate cortex to prime itself to cope with more discomfort than it perhaps would be able to do normally and so this is the opposite of what we you know for example if you go for a for a shot in the in your doctor's office and say this will hurt this might hurt and you you're waiting for it to come the opposite is what we actually do we say oh this won't hurt a bit you might feel a little prick but it's uh, and that actually reverses or makes worse our ability to cope it you're much better off we don't do this with kids and stuff because of ethical reasons they're saying this is really gonna effing hurt 
And then when it happens, it doesn't surprise, surprise, it doesn't hurt as much as they expect it to. So we take that principle and we use that in pre-race or pre-hard interval training sessions where you you kind of almost like let yourself into a position where you're ready to accept it. And then that improves your ability to tolerate it. Yeah. And I think there's there's some differences between fear and anxiety. I think we we're fearful of the the race related pain and fatigue that comes with running really hard the anxiety that runners experience and and this is something that i've always struggled with i get really nervous before races and i I think this is extremely common among runners you know everyone gets butterflies in their stomach and they get those nervous sweats and you know can you talk about what causes those feelings of of race anxiety and can they be productive? Is it is it all bad? Should we eliminate anxiety completely? Oh, good God, no. In fact, we need anxiety in most of the physical feelings that you're feeling, not necessarily the debt, the self-doubt or fear that comes with the mental side of anxiety, but just the physical changes. And it's the, it's the body's stress response. So whether it's increased respiration rate, increased heart rate, needing to pee or poop or getting sweaty palms, all these physical reactions are designed to make us as fast, as light and as tough as possible. And that's that fight or flight response. And we know, for example, that in your brain, the, the, the right in the middle of our brain is this really ancient, old fashioned, you know, millions of years is called the limbic system. And the limbic system has things in it like the amygdala and the hippocampus, other things that m- many of us have heard of. But the limbic system is designed to keep you alive and to protect you from physical harm, life-threatening physical harm, but also psychological harm. And psychological harm, this is the, your, the way that your limbic system defines that, is humiliation, embarrassment and inadequacy. And it will kick and scream to make sure you avoid situations that could put you in jeopardy of those three things. And so, but because this part of our brain hasn't really evolved much beyond having giving you this stress response when you detect things that are threatening to you, it genuinely thinks that you're going to be eaten by a tiger or, you know, trampled to death by a woolly mammoth. It doesn't know it's just a silly 10K, local 10K. So, so what happens is that part of your brain, and it's been given special sort of superpowers to make sure that you listen to it, meaning that you it drives decision making to avoid situations that are going to feel stressful, uh, or so on. And those powers are the first thing is that it processes information that comes in through your ears and your eyes and other other senses, but mainly our ears and our eyes, five times quicker than the rest of your brain. So that part of your brain is already picking up that things in your environment are threatening. It might be that, it, you know, obviously you're at a race and you can see, you know, there's other runners around. They all look seem stronger and fitter and faster than you. Uh, that You know, there's a, you're looking at your watch and you know that you've only got 35 minutes till the start and all these other cues. And, but before your logical, rational frontal cortex brain has had a chance to really process that logically, your limbic system, what we call your chimp brain, because it acts like a chimp, it's like a bit out of control, has a few tantrums, and it only thinks emotionally, it can't think logically, is sending all these signals to your body to react in a way to get you ready to fight or fight uh, or flee or even hide. And so those physical reactions are designed to make you as light as possible, to make your muscles as responsive as possible, to make oxygen supply uh, to your working muscles as efficient as possible. So all those things are really good things. So we want, if we find athletes are on the start line or they're getting ready races and they don't feel those physical sensations we get more worried about that we want to get people to feel that it's just that we want to get them to interpret them in a positive way rather than a negative way because they're all designed to make you light and fast so how do we strike a balance i mean it sounds like some of some anxiety is good but too much can be debilitating right Right. And that really uh, is very individual. Some people can cope with a lot more than others. So what we what we try and do is we start off with this quite fundamental question that we ask our athletes and we say to people, you know, A, do you have thoughts and feelings that you don't want? And most people who live a normal life will say, well, of course I do. But in sport and particularly when it comes to racing and training for running, we say, right, at this particular moment, and you, you know, whether you're on the start line or it's the night before a race, or do you want to think or feel like this right now? 
And if the answer is no, you know, I want to enjoy it. I want to get ready for space, but I'm nervous. I'm not sure why did I sign up for it, or I don't feel at, I don't feel as strong or prepared as I as I could be. Those thoughts and feelings when you don't want, you've now been hijacked by that limbic system, by your chimp brain, and it's really running the show for you because it doesn't know that it's just a race or it's just a hard interval session. So our our kind of litmus test is whether you it whether you've crossed that line is do you want to think or feel like this now and for some athletes they say i'm i'm anxious but my i can feel my body's ready and yes i'm nervous but yes i'm ready and i want to feel like this because this is gets me in the right frame of mind so yes they don't need really much help but athletes who stand and they're honest with themselves say, you know i don't want to, i want to enjoy this and i know it's going to be uncomfortable but i know i can endure it but i don't want to be so frightened looking for reasons or excuses not to do the training or not to show up for that race or so on so that's our starting point and then we figure out and develop strategies to how do we get the rational logical you your frontal cortex what we call your professor brain back in charge so that you know it's just a a 10k it isn't a life or death situation or the chances for actual humiliation are really low it's just that you might be embarrassed if you do come last or you don't get on the podium or whatever it is that's you know how you've decided what success and failure looks like to you so what we're trying to do is to get athletes to have the rational thinking them the real them professor brain back in charge of them and there are some strategies to help athletes do that leslie i'm curious you've i mean you're a three-time world champion in triathlon have have you ever experienced debilitating anxiety before a race and and how do you deal with that at, at such a high level of sport oh totally i mean i've had absolute terrible problems with uh, nervousness and anxiety and a lot of the a lot of those um I would say represent themselves in kind of like a weakness. So I feel very sort of physically weak, especially at the start of races. Um, so a, a huge thing that uh, I've had to do is create an alter ego um, for myself. Um, so I have an, a, a background in acting, actually, a graduate degree in acting and theatre. And so um, I started to kind of hear about other um uh, uh, you know, sports people and whatnot, uh, Beyonce, for example, that has an alter ego. And I started to create my own one. So uh, my alter ego is uh, an Irish boxer called Paddy McGinty. And uh, I've created this whole character, you know, what does Paddy wear? How does Paddy act? How does Paddy walk and talk? And, um, you know, it, it essentially allowed me to take all of those sort of nervous attributes of, of me, Leslie, the person, you know, no, 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 you go first, all the niceties that I have in my personality and essentially put those aside and create this whole new character. And, and that's uh, really helped me overcome a lot of those uh, nervousness yeah. and anxiety. And, and it's interesting because, Thinking about yourself in the third person or giving yourself a separate identity is really psychologically powerful. And the reason is, is that, you know, the conventional psychological model, for want of a better word, is that the thoughts that you have influence how you feel and how you feel influences how you act. And that sort of little chain of three things is a, is a, fundament, a good fundamental way of understanding you know, the human mind and how it affects the things we do. But we now know that we can reverse engineer that process so that if you assume the the characteristics the behaviors of something it has a knock-on effect on your feelings which change and then in turn changes your thoughts so we're kind of reversing that process and it isn't just a mindset of faking or playing make-believe we get physical changes neurochemical changes neurotransmitters testosterone cortisol they change when you fake things and that in turn can bring around the emotion and the thoughts patterns behind it so it's quite a powerful strategy to do this and the nice thing is that it, you can do it in a couple of minutes right you just try and find a character that you want attributes of and it can be a fictional one or, or a real person and you say i want to be confident i want to look as though i don't care and i want to have that steely death stare and i want to be on this on the on the on the start line feeling as though i deserve to be there and so you can fake it and there's and the science now says that fake it till you make it actually has a very good rationale well thank god because that's what i tell my runners <laughs> great 
Yeah, I think I think stepping into the role that that you'd like to play is a really important way of of managing that anxiety and and also building that self confidence too. You know, so it's not necessarily, you know, uh, you don't act the way that you feel; you feel the way that you act, uh, and that's yeah. a, an yeah. interesting way to flip that. And I'm glad the science is there too. Yeah, it is. And in our book, we have a an alter ego development exercise where we walk you through how to actually create a character and how to start embodying it in your training and racing. And you don't it doesn't have to be ludicrous or embarrassing. You can do it without anybody really knowing. But it actually is so powerful. In fact, many athletes do this already. When you talk to them, they say, oh, I do this. And they haven't really spoken or told anyone that they do it. But they found that it's immensely beneficial. And so and so, I think that this is, again, something that you, none of the psychology textbooks will tell you to do. But we've, we've learned that it works. Real athletes use it. And there's actually good science behind why it works. And so it's a good method for, for athletes of all levels to do. And it really ties into what you said before of – you know, there's there's very little downside to to being too overconfident as a runner, um, as long as you're, I think, realistic with say how fast you go out in a race and and the type right. of mileage and workouts that you do. But as long as your training is sound and your race strategy is sound, having the confidence in your abilities, it's very hard to have too much of that. And, and I think this is a really great way to build upon that too. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as you're more confident, you take more risks. And tactically, this is really good because it isn't just that you do these, you know, Hail Mary efforts during races, but you you need to know, you know, if you want to know, like, how tight your screw goes you also have to over tighten it occasionally so oh that didn't work or you went out at this pacing strand and that didn't work so unless you have a good gauge of that it's really hard to then find that middle ground for what most what is most effective but if you're always running slightly feeling a slightly more comfortable or being comfortable you're never really going to know how tight your screw can go mentally in racing yeah speaking of risk i think that's a excellent point that you made and breakthroughs in racing performances only happen when you take a risk. Now, the flip side of that coin is that more often than not, you will probably fail. And yeah. you say something really great in your book that I want to highlight here. You, the, there's a quote that says, we hope that you fail, preferably miserably at first. It's the <laughs> confrontation of and subsequent survival from getting knocked back that is the most potent builder of bravery. And I yeah. think that is such an incredible uh, line that I think every runner really should internalize. It's, it's getting back from defeat, from failure, from being knocked down. That is going to make runners not only more resilient and mentally tough, but you know, ultimately it's going to make them a lot faster. Absolutely. And every runner on their program should occasionally have sessions where they look at it and they think, I don't think I can get this done. I don't know who they think I am, but I can't get this done because that mental position, that mental place that you have to then go to as long as you're willing to try is ultimately how you do this. And we know it's standing back up after getting knocked on your ass that builds that. And unless and if your training never puts you on your ass, metaphorically speaking, uh, you're never really going to develop that ability. So we want athletes. We like it when our athletes tell us, I don't think I can get this done because it isn't about the physical accomplishment. It's about the mental fortitude to push through and to see whether they can. Yeah, to me, it seems that you're really echoing the idea of being anti-fragile, of being flexible enough to overcome obstacles and failures, learn from them, and really become a better athlete from those experiences. And those experiences, some will be good, but many of them will be bad. Do you think that's a fair characterization of that? That's an, absolute, that's an absolutely fair uh, conclusion. And I think we remind, we need to keep reminding athletes that if that worst case scenario comes true, that you go out at this pace and you can't hold it, you blow spectacularly and you may not even finish. So what? What, you know, what really happens as a consequence of that? So we like to get people comfortable with failing because you get a little of that. OK, I don't I didn't feel that embarrassed. I didn't feel that humiliated. I don't feel inadequate. You get back up, you try it again and you can become desensitized to failure. Right. And and when you're able to do that, you're able to race and train a lot more freer without those expectations, without worry that if it doesn't come off. And that's that kind of risk strategy that we're trying to get people to know or at least expose themselves to. 
Yeah. And I think it's also helpful for runners to reframe failed races or failed workouts as experiments that simply didn't work out. So <laughs> if you try a new pacing strategy or this new aggressive tactic in, in a race and it doesn't work out and you have a bad race, well, that's just an experiment that shows, okay, well, that didn't work for me this time. Maybe I'll try it again at another time. Maybe I'll try something slightly different. It's a way right. of further refining your skill as a runner. So it's it's not necessarily a failure. It's just learning something new about yourself as an athlete. Absolutely. And it's like Thomas Edison, you know, who the famous quote from him, the light bulb. He said, I haven't found, you know, uh, I haven't come up with the right answer yet, but I found 10,000 things that don't work. And right. that, that mindset is, is incredibly powerful. And it's getting out of this notion that, that things that happen to you are somehow a comment on your – a negative comment on how your training is going or how you are as a person or an athlete, your ability or your future as an athlete. It's all feedback and more – and even better than that, it's guidance. It's pointing you in the which direction that you should go to, to be able to overcome that in the future. So seeing feedback as guidance rather than as a, 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 you know, a comment on your potential or your future or your fitness is, is a mindset shift that is really critical for athletes to master. Yeah. And, you know, my my previous coaches, whenever we would have a bad workout or a race, there was, of course, some some discussion about it. But very often it was, well, OK, so what? What's the big deal? Yeah. We're just going to keep on moving forward with our training. It, we're not going to throw the whole season out the window because you slow down on the last lap of that track race and uh, weren't able to to get that personal best or, to, you know, get that first place. It's just we got to keep moving. We need to keep moving forward, uh, onward and upward. And if we don't do that, then we're never going to progress. Yeah, absolutely. Simon, Leslie, thanks so much for hanging out with me today and, and really helping us understand how to get out of our comfort zones. I think as a coach, this is one of the most important skills that runners should be consistently working on. So uh, I really appreciate you guys being here to talk about this. Thanks so much, Jason. We've loved it. All right, great. Thank you again. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. A big thanks to Simon and Leslie for coming on the show. This was a fun episode, and I hope you were able to pull a few nuggets of wisdom out of it to improve your running. Don't forget to check out episode 10 with Dr. Justin Ross for even more on the topic of sports psychology. And if you're feeling generous today, I would very much appreciate an honest review on iTunes if you enjoy the show. That feedback is my lifeblood and tells me that folks are engaged with the podcast. So thank you in advance for that, and we'll be in touch soon.